On the show today, I'm excited to be speaking with Kylie Charlton. Now, Kylie is well known in the world of impact investing. She has lots of energy and lots of experience, and so I took the opportunity to talk to her about risk. Risk is a key issue for all investors. It drives decision-making, and it's central to how they forecast the future. And I wanted to know how impact investors perceive risk, both in terms of their analysis of potential opportunities, but also from the business side and some of the key factors that fledgling purpose-led businesses should think about when they consider taking on investment funds. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Kylie has an impressive resume. She's currently Chief Investment Officer of Australian Impact Investments, where she helps clients make investments that have a positive impact while also delivering financial returns. She's also a venture partner at the Giant Leap Fund, Australia's first venture capital fund that is 100% impact focused. She's the co-founder and managing director of Unitas Capital, a financial advisory firm based in India that makes capital accessible to businesses that are improving the lives of low-income families. And she also works with Patama Capital on their Investing in Women initiative. We went wide, but we also went deep on this one. I think we spent as much time talking outside of the recording as we did with the mics turned on. So I'll certainly have to get Kylie back in the studio to share some of those stories. It's a great chat, so let's dive in. You can get all the links and show notes on the website at johntreadgold.com. If you're an Apple user and you want to leave a review, then you can do that in the iTunes podcast app. And there's also lots of good stuff happening on Instagram and Facebook. So feel free to follow us there and let us know that you're listening. All right, enough out of me. Here's my conversation with Kylie Charlton. Here we go. coming into Hub Australia in Sydney today. Uh, in the intro there, I did talk about the, the many roles you've had and, and still, you know, and that you've had in the past, but I'd love to know what you're working on right now. Great. Well, John, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to the conversation. I suppose I wear a number of hats in this sector, a number of roles and, you know, the exciting things that I'm working on at the moment. Yes, as a venture partner for the Giant Leap Fund, uh, really enjoy being able to be part of that team and looking at the pipeline that comes in of really interesting impact businesses which are coming through the Australian environment and looking at doing you know, a range of different things, whether it be looking at sustainability issues in society, whether it be looking at empowering different people, removing unconscious bias, for example, for one of the portfolio companies that we've invested in. So that's one thing. But the other thing that he's working on is really my main role, which is as Chief Investment Officer for Australian Impact Investments, is to look at how do we shift, how do we achieve that paradigm shift in capital allocation? So capital allocation to date has been about risk and reward and that's what the capital markets use you know, holistically for that. But how do we add, you know, as Sir Ronald Cohen says, the you know, sort of grandfather of impact investing as he's often referred to, how do we add the 
the dimension of impact so that all our capital allocation decisions are around risk, reward and impact. And to me, that's the really exciting thing that we're working on with our clients and looking at how do we ensure that our clients are always making decisions in that regard. But how do we also bring other people along that journey as well? Because obviously, when you work in this field, you naturally attract a certain type of client around you. Uh, But how do we make sure that you were expanding that purview of impact um, to people who may not be as a natural inclination to, to take it on? Yeah, we were talking about that earlier, trying to make it more inclusive and, and making sure that we don't get caught in the jargon. And I think there, you know, a judge of success will be when we don't have to define impact investing whenever we have a meeting. I think that's hopefully on the way. But another one in terms of semantics is social enterprise, something that you said you're not fond of. And I wonder, you know, what term would you prefer and why do you think that one doesn't quite work? Yeah, it's interesting comment. And I suppose I, um, as I said in my email to you, John, I have nearly an allergic reaction to that word social enterprise. And I think we get so caught up in nomenclature. And it's been something I've worked in the field for 15 years. I think nomenclature has been something which has helped and something which has been um, a real disadvantage in the field as well. And I suppose with the term social enterprise, it came about in the early 2000s, largely, uh, when it started to be used more commonly. And I think it nearly has a you know implication for a lot of people when they hear it of just another way of expressing a not-for-profit but a more modern way of expressing what a not-for-profit does rather than actually being about businesses being for good uh, and so I suppose in terms of you know would I rather another term I'd rather it be exactly what you said about impact investing I'd rather us be talking about business and business be the force for good rather than talking about well here's a social enterprise and this one's doing good or here's an impact business and this one's doing good. What about having all businesses, which are really giving consideration to what effects they have on people and the planet? Mm. And so I often get this question around social enterprise, and I think this is you know part of what you were talking about, of whether can they be for-profit or not-for-profit? And I mean, you know, that's obviously exactly what you're talking about. And I think, you know, someone like Humanitics has sort of jumped on both sides of the fence and they're a really interesting overview of of that challenge. And, And for them, in the end, it was kind of a governance issue. And how do you see that space? Do you think people now have to make it, you know, I guess we're in a different time. We've evolved to the point where you can choose. I could be not for profit or for profit and still have the same impact. How do you see that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question in terms of, and I was reading an article yesterday actually about Patagonia, which is often sort of, I suppose, heralded as uh, one of the, you know, sort of leading B Corps and, you know, it's a a great example of that. And could we actually recreate them today as well? Or have we actually in the impact investing world sort of said, actually, to be an impact investment, you must be a for-profit business, you must be sort of looking for growth. But I think we actually fundamentally need to relook at our financial system and our models and really examine what is the best fit to achieve impact. And there is no one best way in my point of view. So some are going to be much better structured as a not-for-profit and some things are never going to move to a profitable model. It's just not going to be possible. And then there is others which are best focused as a for, structured as a for-profit. And, you know, I think there is going to be something in the middle as well. So some people in the impact investing space will say, you know, things like 
your, I suppose um, Who Gives a Crap is a great example where they give away 50% of their profit for impact. Are they suitable for an impact investment? Some would say actually no, they're not um, because they're giving away their profit and hence that takes away the money which can be distributed to their investors. But actually when we sit back and we think about it, that is an extremely impactful business and those types of models we need to actually, I think, get more traction on alongside everything else. So it's sort of more like there's no one best way and I, you know, I would be the first to say I think we need to have a sort of a broad church um, of how we think about impact um, in terms of the construct under which it's done from a legal entity perspective. Yeah, very good. And I think, uh, you know, who, who give a crap is a great example. Do you have any other examples of, I guess, I mean, you've, you've had this consulting role and I think that's unique in, you know, you probably have lots of different organisations and constantly different um, structures and, you know, business model innovation itself. That's where really where the impact comes from more than perhaps the capital that you're injecting. So do you have any examples when you've said, actually, no, a for-profit, for-purpose business is the best way to go and that that's a way? And then to contrast that, you know, something where you've said, actually, stick with, you know, um, grant funding? Yeah, so I'll recall a conversation that we had a number of years ago. We actually had a startup school come and have a conversation with us and that conversation was raised first around a table of charitable trusts and foundations and the natural inclination was, oh, we'll grant some money to the startup school to help get them going and the school was focused on children with autism at Sycamore School. We've written about it in you know, sort of public information that we've put out. The inclination was, well, let's just grant to that school. That's what you normally do with schools. But when you sat back and you looked at it and went, actually, it's going to be a private school. It's going to attract government funding. It's going to attract fees from parents whose children are going there. Is that the best use of our grant dollar or should we actually invest in the school, provide it a loan to get it through what was this sort of essentially a valley of death between the time that it had its authorisations to open and the first government money came through and parents started to pay fees? That was probably a better way to go. And so we actually had that conversation with both the foundations and the school about that to say, well, is a grant or is a loan the better, more effective use of capital given we need to understand that the philanthropic dollar is quite a valuable dollar that's the one which it's a limited amount of philanthropic capital wherefore you know sort of capital markets and sort of commercial rate capital occurs in much more abundance than it does so we've seen that a couple of times I think the other one which often comes up is cultural organizations will often come and say we've got this great idea you know we'll attract different people in they'll pay to attend they'll pay to you know you see an exhibition or to see a film etc they're often really hard to get the economics to work um, and usually we'll tempt them to sort of say, actually, maybe stay the conversation for grants. Yeah, they're really good examples. I was really keen in this conversation to talk about risk and risk from uh, the investment side, which is what investors you know, are always focused on, is how to you know, manage risk-adjusted returns. And, and with those examples, I might jump to the enterprise side and say if a company is thinking about seeking impact investment, they do have to think about risk in terms of they now have an investor, they now have shareholders and they have to offer them the return. And there is a lot more to think about there than grant dependence. So how do you help those businesses think about you know, taking on this risk? Businesses need to understand up front and one of the first conversations we'll have is that 
you are taking on an investment, you have an obligation to return that investment back to the investors. The form of that return obviously varies from you know, structure to structure. Uh, the time of the return will vary, the amount of the return, but ultimately investors want at least their capital back and they want some level of return back. And the way that that happens, as I say, varies from investment to investment. So I think the conversation starts there to make it really clear to people that you are accepting an investment. This isn't just a grant which is dressed up in a different way um, and people will look at it three years down the track and say, oh, it's okay, you don't need to give it back to us. Um, That's not the start of the conversation. So that's really important that people understand that up front. And then, you know, we often say we put on our impact hat, we look at these businesses, we assess them to determine whether they'll achieve impact or not. And then we sort of take our impact hat off and then we talk about the financial risks of the businesses and have a look at, you know, how successful are they going to be? What's the team involved? Who's the management involved? What support do they have around them? What's the market that they're trying to address? Are they going to be able to penetrate and attract that market? Do they have market fit for product or for services that they're offering? Um, What other access do they have to different forms of capital as well as the business grows or as it potentially has difficulties as well? What support do they have behind them? Um, So it's actually having a conversation then about all those other risk factors that any other business, regardless of whether it's a business which is focused on driving impact at social or environmental impact or whether it's sort of saying, well, we're just a business, we're here to make money, Um, but it's to look at that side. And then we sort of knit it all back together and say, well, how do those two risks intertwine with each other in terms of they've set out to achieve certain impact, are they going to be able to achieve that? And then here's the financial sustainability of the business. Do those two walk in lockstep together or do they walk separately together, which actually is problematic to most investors who are investing for impact because they don't want to be faced with the situation throughout the investment where all of a sudden hard decisions are made and the impact sort of falls away from the investment that they've actually committed to. Um, And so looking at both sides and then looking at how they interact together um, is a really important part of the analysis and that's part of the conversation with those businesses as well. Mm. And so going broader from that investment side, you know, we often have different asset classes are viewed as um, as growth or defensive or if they're counter-cyclical, will when, you know, if there's a market downturn, will they suffer like, the, you know, the rest of the listed equity market? So I wonder without, you know, I'm always hesitant to call impact investing an asset class. It's obviously very broad. But how do you feel about, you know, risk generally for impact investing? And and we've been promised a recession for a, a long time now and everybody's kind of waiting and, and we wonder about where we are on the business cycle. But um, how do you see a potential downturn and, and how that'll affect impact investors? Yeah. Well, John, as you say, impact investing isn't an asset class. Impact investments sit right across different asset classes. And, you know, they have different characteristics as asset classes have different characteristics so do impact investments and so I think there's definitely a number of impact investments uh, which I would consider will be counter cyclical the one which immediately comes to mind are things like the social impact bonds where they aren't reliant on the economic cycle that is very much reliant on the delivery of essential you know, services to certain parts of our population and which government actually pays for. So they're definitely, I think, you know, sort of you put them on the counter-cyclical side and then you can look at things, you know, sort of essential infrastructure as well that impact investors are involved with, particularly as we look at transition to renewable economy. Obviously, a lot of impact investors are engaging in that transition story and investing in renewables as well. Energy typically 
doesn't largely ride um, with the economic cycle as well. So I think there's quite a number of um, different opportunities uh, within the impact investing space which are counter-cyclical. We see, we've seen evidence of that come out, you know, when we've looked at the microfinance sector as well, that, you know, when you are providing product or service which is absolutely essential to the everyday life, uh, that it largely is not counter-cyclical. Yeah, and do you think that's a key sort of um, attraction for people investing in in like social impact bonds and those sorts of things? Do you think they identify that? I think some do. I wouldn't say it's the primary decision factor for most investors to say, oh, well, this is counter-cyclical. Part of the reason for that is that often these investments still represent quite a small proportion of the total capital that they're investing. And so the fact that they may have investment in a social impact bond, you know, it probably represents 1% of that of their total capital. And so therefore, you know, they are going to get economic cycles affecting, you know, often the rest of their capital as well. And, you know, any investor, and, you know, this is how we look at constructing portfolios, is around, you know, a diversified asset mix. And so they will have, yes, exposure to private and public markets. And, you know, public markets are going to be subject to the economic cycle. But if we choose our public market or our listed equity exposures appropriately, do we with consideration of impact and with consideration of how they are contributing to long-term sustainability of the economy, do we actually mitigate or at least ameliorate to some extent how they're connected to economic cycles? And I think that's to be proven out and times to be, you know, we we don't yet have the data um, around that. With the exception that we definitely see, you know, if we lend from the sort of responsible investment and you said, you know, impact investing is a broad term, you know, I think we're definitely learning a lot from the responsible investment world as well uh, in terms of the data there is showing that responsible investment funds have performed at level or if not better than sort of mainstream traditional funds with no responsible overlay on them as well. And most portfolios that we run, you know, with clients at Australian Impact Investments will have a combination of response, you know, what would be more commonly known as responsible investments and then impact investments in them as well, partly because the universe for impact investments is still currently relatively small. And the side of that that is huge is obviously the listed markets um, and you've got ESG overlays that I think, you know, it's really becoming clear to people that that's not really an ethical decision like impact investing might be. That's just a risk overlay. And it's actually hard to imagine how you'd invest without considering your environmental and social and government factors, because they're clearly so important. And that that might come out uh, in the wash when we do see a downturn and see how they perform. So I think, as you say, the data will tell us a lot there. And this is great. I love getting deep on the collision of of the social side and finance, but I don't want to turn too many people off. I'd love to get into sort of your background and, and wonder what was your journey to impact investing? I've worked in the space since 2004, so I predate the term impact investing. Um, It makes me feel quite old to think about that now. So it's nearly 15 years um, since I've been involved in the sector, nearly actually probably to the day since I was offered my first role. I have a financial background. I did commerce, banking and finance at university. I then worked in the mainstream financing world for 10 years. But my journey really started by the fact that I also had an opportunity to do a lot of travel during that time and was quite confronted, particularly when I travelled through emerging markets, quite confronted by the fact that 
the privilege that I had here in Australia and, you know, through school and through work was actually a function of the fact that what I now sort of term postcode privilege. I was born here. I was born to a middle-class family. I grew up in Canberra, had access to a great public education system, and that provided opportunity. But when I travelled through emerging markets, you know, I could have been born anywhere in those markets which I sort of travelled, whether it be in whether it be in India, whether it be Kenya or Zambia where I'd travel through, whether it be places in Latin America as well, that I wouldn't have had that same privilege just by sheer fact of where I was born. And so that was quite confronting to me. And so I really sort of sat back after 10 years in the finance industry and went, well, how do you start to marry finance skills with something which was actually going to be more interesting to me, which was going to excite me to get me out of bed? I didn't want to do, you know, the financing of any more toll roads or mining projects or manufacturing plants, which is what I was doing. I was doing structured finance. But how could I marry that skill set of finance with something which was going to excite me to get me out of bed each day? And so I weighed up the options of saying, do I go and do some volunteering in those countries which I'd travelled with and sort of seen so much need in, or do I go back and do some more study? And people would say, well, I probably took the easy task of going back and saying, well, I'll go and do my MBA. Yeah, that's a very traditional, you know, sort of mainstream path to go down. But the reasoning for me was that, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nurse, I'm not a teacher. I didn't know how useful I was actually going to be on the ground to communities. And so I went back, did my MBA. I was fortunate enough to do it at the Said Business School at the year the Skoll Centre for Social Entrepreneurship was opened. And so it completely allowed me to explore a different side of how you could connect finance with impact. And so after that, I went and headed up a group, a not-for-profit in the US, their capital markets group, looked at that blend of philanthropy, responsible investment, as it was called at the time, and mainstream financing, took the team I was running and eventually created Unitas Capital. And you'll talk to my co-founder in a few weeks about Unitas Capital, which will be great. So that's Eric Savage. And after that, came back to Australia. And I've been involved in the industry here really now for 10 years and looking at how does, how does it emerge? What do we need to do to grow it? And worn a number of different hats over that time. Yeah, and your experience in emerging markets, I think I came away with the same kind of feelings and, you know, had worked on um, sort of social impact health development projects and these sorts of things. And, and now that I've come to impact investing, I came with that development kind of focus and, and really saw the potential in shifting capital markets and really helping these businesses grow in, in places where they don't even have the bottom rung of the ladder. They really sort of need that step up. But the Aussie investors seem to have a home bias. And, and you know, in the Pacific, in Asia, in our backyard, we don't, uh, we've got mainly the US, we've got European investors diving in there. Why do you think there's that hesitation from uh, local? It's a great question and um, it's interesting. When I first came back to Australia in 2009, having you know, founded United's Capital, which is all about basically our, our goal was to change the capital markets and make them efficient for low-income populations. And you know, I came back to Australia thinking, great, we have this enormous capital markets here. We have one of the largest sort of pension superannuation um, systems in the world. Surely, we will be able to start to invest in low-income populations in that in the region. You know, Australia is very fortunate. It sits in the middle, you know, as a wealthy nation in the middle of a region which has so many challenges about it. And often I think we just don't think ourselves as being part of the region. We don't think of ourselves as being part of that Asian economy or part of the Pacific. But 
it was challenging when I came back because it was just like, oh, no, that's not what we want to do. I suppose my thesis around why Australian investors have been so hesitant, it's really threefold in terms of I think there's a lack of knowledge of what the need is and I think we often position it as international aid rather than actually as economic empowerment. And I think that's the really important thing. When we look at international opportunities in emerging markets for investment, we're really looking at, well, what is needed to drive economic empowerment, not what is needed to provide aid to organisations, because there is a role for both. From an investment perspective, though, it is about that economic empowerment. So how do we, and John, you and I were talking before we started here, but how do we do things like like improve supply chains so that the people at the end of those supply chain, which might be, for example, smallhold agricultural farmers, how do we make sure they get value from that supply chain rather than being ripped out at the top or in the middle so that they get no value from the work that they're done? How do we actually produce life-enhancing products or services uh, for low-income populations too, which is both accessible and affordable? They're real business opportunities and create economic empowerment for people within the system as well. And I think in Australia, people haven't necessarily entered into those types of conversations. The last point I would make on it also is that many of the sort of impact funds which have been investing into the emerging markets haven't actually made a concentrated effort on having conversations with Australian investors as well. And so for many Australian investors, um, they don't know about the product. And if they do know about the product, often it's really hard to access or it's complicated to access. You know, it's sitting, you know, somewhere in the Netherlands, it's sitting in the US. It's like there's not a platform for it to be offered here in Australia in ease of entry for Australian investors as well. So I think you know, they're the three reasons I would give sort of access to suitable product, which is easily accessible by people thinking about it as economic empowerment rather than international aid and recognising we have a responsibility to the region as well. Yeah, look, and I think that there's a really, it might be a little bit cynical, but thinking about both aid and investment as being, well, why should we do it unless there's, you know, going to be a benefit to us? And I think in some ways, fair enough, but economic empowerment, you know, and improving the region as a whole is so great for Australia. Most of our trading partners are in Asia and to help them grow and I don't know countries like Indonesia that that are growing but constantly keep hitting sort of obstacles um, and haven't quite met their their potential and to help them get over the line and push is is really going to offer so many opportunities for Australia and I just generally build those connections and and as you said I think that's a really key issue We, we don't share a lot of cultural similarities and well look I think we share some but you know there are a lot of differences and so I think breaking down those barriers um will help open up the vision of the opportunities, but then perhaps it'll go the other way as well. If we start trading with each other, maybe that will break down the, the cultural barriers so that we can sort of be neighbours the way we should be. And then I guess, you know, we've talked a little bit there about the different types of investors and, and how they view it. And I think impact investing always, you know, when it began, it was uh, high net worth individuals, it was philanthropists wanting to invest in line with their values and try and um, use the capital that they have in in different ways to to try and deal with some big challenges in the world. And so I wonder, has that group expanded as impact investing has grown? Uh, You know, are are there different groups coming in? Yeah, look, when I look 
back at you know the conversation five years ago and who was actually involved in the conversation, who was actively committing capital. We've seen an enormous shift over the last number of years, uh, you know, going from, yes, that high net worth individual, um, independent asset owner being able to make that and through to, yes, superannuation funds now starting to have the conversation, uh, wealth managers realising that they need to actually start to engage in the conversation um, to be able to satisfy an increasing interest in what will become an increase demand from their client base as well. So I think at this stage, what I would say is the conversation has definitely moved. I mean, I rarely now walk into a room where I mention the word impact investing and people's eyes glaze over, which was the case five years ago and definitely the case 10 years ago. Uh, so we know more, you know, I think more broadly uh, in the investment community, the term is known and people are talking about it. You know, I was involved in a table of your know, major superannuation funds late last year and we wouldn't have had that conversation, you know, even two years ago with those superannuation funds in the room. But they're all recognising that impact investing provides them an opportunity to appeal to their members to meet what their members are now demanding, but also to diversify their investment portfolios as well. And if you look at economic theory or financial theory, diversification is always considered a good thing. So people are seeing that as positive. So definitely we've seen an increasing range of players come into the conversation. What I want to see is that conversation move from just talk to actually real capital starting to shift as well. And I think that's where we'll really see action. Mm. And super funds really are the touch point for people on the street to, I think, connect with impact investing. You know, a lot of people feel like, oh, I'm not an investor, I don't have this money, but we've all got bank accounts, we've all got super funds. And there are really, I guess, if people start engaging with their super fund a little bit more, and I think post-Royal Commission, we're seeing people do that. And so the, the super funds are starting to realise that they really do have to have deeper offerings and really explain their position of why they're making certain investments. And uh, with impact reports, it's easier than ever for them to show, you know, not just where it's being invested, but the power, the impact and what effect it's having on the ground. So hopefully that goes deeper and that people do keep engaging. And I mean, are there any examples of sort of positive engagement from the big instos like the big super funds that you feel are worth sharing of sort of, I know Hester have done some good work with their retirement the homes. Retirement homes yeah, and yeah, their property right. strategies. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I mean, that was obviously connected to the health services, which is their core base. So are there any other examples that, that you think are doing well? I mean, the two which, you know, immediately come to mind as we're talking about superannuation funds are definitely Hester and then Christian Super as well, which has been in this space for you know, sort of 10 years and, you know, got a significant portfolio now within the impact investing as well. Uh, we're definitely starting to see a number of others, you know, play. We've seen CBUS, you know, come in and do a number of investments and we'll continue to see different, you know, superannuation funds come in. But I think we're at the start of the conversation with superannuation funds. And one of the really important points that, you know, I often talk to people about is we do have somewhat of an infatuation in Australia to say, well, we will grow the impact investing market if we can attract the superannuation funds. Yes, that's true. But I think on the flip side of that is that definitely what we've seen, you know, in my experience has been, is that a lot of the testing 
of different product and proving up of product has actually been done by independent asset owners. So it might be the family offices, it's the high net worth individuals, which actually say we're willing and we're able to make decisions to go into new product, to test that product, to prove it up. And that is actually an essential part of developing the ecosystem. And unless we have that occurring simultaneously to the conversation with superannuation funds, what we potentially risk is that we don't actually have the sort of product pipeline development for those superannuation funds because most of those funds can only engage, you know, sort of significant ticket sizes. So they want to invest $100 million. Most of the impact investments that we see here in Australia couldn't absorb $100 million at the moment. Some definitely could, but a lot couldn't as well. So how do we ensure that we're working at both ends of the sort of you know, wealth scale, if I put it that way, or a you know, size of capital allocations in terms of the independent asset owner who can do really effective things, but at a smaller scale and prove that up so that we can then take that and scale it for superannuation as well. So I think it's important to make sure we don't lose sight of the importance of having a broad set of asset owners and investors and fund managers in the conversation. Mm. And having those conversations so that they can understand, you know, what is it, what are the structures that super funds need? And they do have so many regulations and requirements, which is important. You know, this is people's pensions and this is their future. So it does need to be carefully managed and they do a great job of that. But look, I could talk to you all day about this stuff, but I have to let you go. But before I do, I'd love a book recommendation um, and to mix it up a bit. What is a book that you found yourself giving away uh, a lot? The one that you know, I will often you know, give away, recommend to people is actually Donor Economics by Kate Rayworth. And I know, John, I think a lot of people actually mention that on this podcast. Um, I think it just is something which has really simplified how we need to think about capital and economics in terms of we need to make sure we're not leaving people behind and we need to actually do that in a way which doesn't place undue pressure on what are limited resources that we have in this world. Very good. No, her model's quite amazing. And I think she's uh, done a lot of work. You know, we saw, we've got the book, she was featured on 2040 Damon Gamow's film. And she's, you know, I think rolling that out and, and because of the success, doing a lot more work, more books, more movies and more ways to tell these stories. And that's what I hope I'm contributing to here, trying to break down some of the jargon and, and show people the opportunities that we all have to invest and, and spend and, and how our decisions can have an impact. So thanks for sharing your story today. It was really good. And uh, people can follow along with what you're up to. I'll put all the links uh, on the website. And so, yeah, thank you very much, Carly. Thanks for having me, John. Really appreciate it.